hello, everybody. Uh, this is Pradimna on the Bretton Goods podcast. And I have with me today uh, Garrett Jones, who is a professor of, of economics at George Mason University. And he's written a book called 10% Less Democracy. And, I, and we're, here to talk, uh, we're here to talk to him about it today. So uh, could you talk to us about the basic, uh, what is the book about for people who haven't heard about it? Well, the basic idea is that all of the forms of governance that we call democracy in the rich countries are a blend of mass participation with elite participation. So a representative democracy is the classic example of this. Very few government decisions are made by um, plebiscite, by um, voters directly picking the, the policy choice. Instead, we elect, we vote for some, de we delegate um, power to some people who make decisions for a few years. And then there are other decisions that we even in turn have, um, we allow those elected representatives to delegate to still other people. The entire judiciary is set up that way, right? Mm -hmm. right? So this very indirect form of democracy, a form of elite control or what the Greeks would have just So our modern governments are a mix of democracy controlled by the masses with oligarchy controlled by the few. And that blend, that hybrid is what we've been living with for the last couple of centuries. And yeah. my claim in the book is that the balance between democracy and oligarchy in the rich countries is, is, off, is, is off balance and that we could make the right reforms. We okay. could get big benefits at low costs just by switching to a little bit more oligarchy. Right. And one of the uh, reforms you had recommended was that we should have longer terms for uh, representatives in the House in the U.S. But my question for this was that wouldn't this just mean that they have a lot more leeway to... Uh, or to be corrupt or, or, or in some sense there's less democratic accountability with the large amounts of lobbying that goes on, wouldn't this uh, wouldn't the shift towards the oligarchy as you call it uh, increase the, the, the amount of um, increase the effect of corporate money in politics? Well it's that's a hypothetical possibility that certainly should be tested but when we actually look at governments that have longer terms in office versus shorter terms in office, that is, as far as I know, never one of the things. Okay. Um, so this is a case where there are many theoretical downsides, but only going out and measuring things in the real world will address, will answer the question. Mm -hmm. In the book where we can actually say, hey, somebody check to see what the effects are of longer terms. And it turns out, for instance, that when you compare the U.S. Senate to the U.S. House, U.S. senators are more likely to vote for free trade deals. And they're especially likely to vote for those free trade deals when they're early on in their six-year term. Right. They're less likely to support free trade for the end of their six-year term. So if I was going to pick an, an area where I thought that the global um, corporatist insiders would control politicians, it'd be on free trade deals. And... Um, yet politicians act like they are paying attention to the voters. And right before an election, they're likely to give the voters just what the voters want. And often that's something that's bad. You mentioned that you worked for a senator. I've, I've always wondered what would that be like? What is the most interesting thing about working in, in, for a senator? 
Well, I mean, part of it is to realize that uh, the senator's job is not to be an expert on each and every policy. Every senator has a few areas of policy interest where he or she really likes to be an expert. Right. But um, senators often see their own jobs not as knowing the details of policy and picking the right details, mm-hmm. but instead of building coalitions and bringing people together. Okay. So a story that I've told a few times, um, I heard a Senate staffer, a very senior Senate staffer once say that a certain senator would make a great Supreme Court chief justice. Mm-hmm. And the reason why wasn't because this senator was a great legal expert, but and this is a direct quote as far as I can recall. Um, the senator would make a great chief justice of the Supreme Court because the senator knows how to count to five. <laughs> <laughs> because in the U.S. in the Supreme Court, yeah, there's nine people, mm-hmm. and if if you get four votes, you're just an interesting blogger. But if you're five votes, you're controlling the destiny of the nation, right? right. So, so building coalitions, bringing people together, that seems to be a, a key skill that politicians have. And so there's a real division of labor within every Senate office, mm-hmm. where the senator is often the one, you know, keeping an eye on all of the other senators and trying to figure out where coalitions can be built. Mm-hmm. And where they're where it's too expensive to build them, and the staff are often working on the details of policy in general agreement with the senator's worldview. Mm-hmm. How much leeway do staff have? If I'm a staffer at a senator's office, can I push things a little to the left or to the right? Yes, and in particular, you can push on details to be more technocratic or more crude, more crass. Mm-hmm. You know, more you know, to pander more to. Um, the donor, for instance, okay. or to voters back home, right? So, entering to voters back home, that's called, you know, representative democracy. So, <laughs> you're, those are the people you're supposed to pander, right? Right. Um, but there's often a trade off between good policy and giving the voters back home what they want. And mm-hmm. so, as a staffer, there are, you get a, you do have a lot of power to um, shape small little details that really become part of the conversation, right? Because right. when you're helping your senator shape a bill, that bill is still going to go through the meat grinder of being analyzed by one by 99 other senators and their staffs. Okay. So you're always really playing a probabilistic game when you're, when you're um, trying to influence a bill, you're basically mm-hmm. saying, here's a one in a thousand lottery ticket that this thing will work. So yeah. if you work on a hundred policies, maybe two of the things turn out a lot like the way you pushed. Mm. And you'll, you'll be happy about that. Yeah, and people, people around, uh, people in D.C. do keep track of this, right? They keep track of who's effective and who's not. And it's never a one, it's never an either-or thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's always a matter of continuum because everyone in, who's seriously involved in this knows that um, each particular policy issue is its own, is its own lottery ticket. Right. So um, one term I heard once used on Capitol Hill was there's two kinds of staffers. There are door openers and there are wonks. Huh. Um, I may be getting the jargon wrong, but that captures the idea, right? There are people right. who are good at building connections and talking to people, and there are some people who just grind down onto the issues. And mm. any good legislative office is going to need both. Any good senator's office is going to need both. Okay, yeah. I've okay. So presidents, um, congressmen, both do a lot of foreign policy work, but I've noticed that voters don't really care about foreign policy. Uh, how do I reconcile these two things? I mean, besides specific issues like Israel-Palestine or maybe on terrorism, voters don't care about foreign policy, but some senators do a lot of work on foreign policy. Why did, does this happen? 
Well, part of it is because of committee assignments, right? So committee assignments will shape a lot of what, what you have resources to do and where other senators will actually pay attention to you, right? Mm-hmm. If you're on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, um, people know that you're going to have a lot of sway over funding different international programs, over how treaties get drafted um, and revised. Um, and so people will, there's a natural incentive to basically um, for all the members to delegate foreign policy expertise and foreign policy decision-making to the people on sitting on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee for one and the Senate Intelligence Committee for another. Mm-hmm. Uh, a big distinction between the two, that's a real public choice inside, I think. You're on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all of your big meetings are held in public and you can publicly take credit for the reforms you proposed. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're intelligence committee because everything's a secret um it's very hard to take public credit for the things you do mm-hmm. and since a whole lot of democratic politics in a representative democracy is about doing things you can get credit for that means that people on the senate intelligence committee often just phone it in they right. don't try very hard they don't show up to meetings um they don't read the books um, my guess would be intelligence that, is a lot more important than foreign policy it's plausible. I mean, the thing is, we don't know because we're not, you know, we can't see what they're actually doing. <laughs> right. um, but um, once you think of politics as being, as democratic politics as having a lot to do with credit claiming and being able to mm. claim credit to your voters, you did something big. Um, you can quickly see that the Senate Intelligence Committee is going to be a place where it's going to be hard to get people to show up and put in good work because they can't take credit for successes. Okay. One thing I read from your book and I found a little uh, something that that struck me as very much possible was imagine we did delegate a lot of policymaking to experts like the fiscal policy committee uh, Alan Blinder proposed. Now, my fear is that it'll, it'll end up like the U.S. Supreme Court, where what happens is, you know, that once you get somebody on the court, they can't be removed for their entire life. Or in, so elections become a lot more competitive. You, you see the rules of the game being changed to appoint justices on, in the fiscal policy committee, um, economists on the thing. And what happens is instead of having good um, policymakers, people put up the most partisan hacks possible so they get their own uh, people on the side. And it, it isn't a hypothetical. It's happened. With the, it's slowly happening with the U.S. Supreme Court. That's an interesting possibility. I mean, it is. It is noteworthy that um, I believe only one of the current Supreme Court justices didn't go to one of the top five or six law schools in the country. Mm. So. I mean, on some level of expertise, that, that can't, that's one signal. Um, right. You know, um, quite, a few of, quite a few members. I mean, uh, Elena Kagan is uh, a professor at, at Harvard, was a professor at Harvard Law School. So, mm-hmm. I mean, maybe she's a very partisan person in a way, but um, hack is probably not the word for her. Uh, yeah. um, when I think about when I think about some of President Trump's appointees to certain White House positions, the word hack sounds a little bit better. Um, you know, the counterexample, so people can very um, attached to the Supreme Court um, and for, for you know, partisan reasons. But let's look at another place that uh, it, where people are appointed to long terms, the Federal Reserve. Right. And the Federal Reserve has done a very good job appointing people who are, there's obviously some partisanship going on, right? Um, right. But, but nevertheless. More or less, they uh, have experienced economists who've done a good job. 
Yes. And when President Trump tried to appoint someone who was, um, let's be polite and say, an untraditional candidate, mm -hmm. um, the Senate just found a way to not vote on her. Right. They, they postponed it till the Senate got shut down in, in November. Yeah. Kicking the can down the road worked just fine. So the insider elitist detached from the politicians, detached from the voters group, the Senate, they managed to kick the can down the road until the um, perhaps the least qualified appointee in the last mm -hmm. few decades um, wasn't able, wasn't put on the court, wasn't put on the Federal Reserve. Why don't technocratic economists agree more? And why should we be confident that they're right if they don't agree? So if, they, if they're so divided on any major policy issue, you will find at a minimum two opposing perspectives on it but it's not like the details it's they have diametrically opposite viewpoints on it well i mean i when it comes to monetary policy i don't think that's all that true um i think that in monetary policy there's this narrow a relatively narrow range of debate about what's good policy and what's bad policy mm -hmm. um and we all we can't always trust tweets as an indicator of what people would actually do when they're in power um, because Twitter rewards a different kind of discussion than you see in academic seminars. Yeah. Well, one party uh, character so, doesn't go very far. Yeah, and it rewards it rewards the most extreme views, which get shared and shared and, and which become focal points, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, we saw a version of this the other day where um, Larry Summers has been critical of the size of the Biden stimulus mm -hmm. and. Ken Rogoff, his Harvard colleague, said, yeah, this is basically the way we economists are sitting around talking to each other at lunch. But we're afraid to say it publicly because we don't want to get beat up the way Larry is. Ah. So Larry Summers, of course, can handle it. Right? He's been through a lot. But the regular, even a regular Harvard economist is apparently unwilling to stick his or her neck out that much. And Ken Rogoff isn't, isn't nobody. He, he, he was chief economist of the IMF, I think. So he's been yes. through his share of public criticism. Exactly. He's, um, and he's willing to stick his neck out, but he's reporting, I think, credibly that there are a lot of other people who quietly mm -hmm. agree with him. And so part of what you want is we want spaces where people who have pretty good competence can carry on their big debates in small rooms away from their smartphones. Ah, right. That kind of consensus turns out a lot better. I think. So. Okay. Now, Switzerland does somewhat of the opposite of what you say. They have a lot of mm -hmm. referendums and they vote on specific policy issues through, through those. Uh, they've turned out okay. They haven't, they haven't gone yeah, but through... They're a great country. Yeah, and uh, what's your explanation for that? Well, I think for every anecdote, there's an equal and opposite anecdote. So the uh -huh. counterexample there would be the equally prosperous country of Singapore and the right. equally impressive country by many measures. Right? Mm. It's much less democratic than ever. Mm. So 188 countries in the world, there's going to be a couple exceptions. The Swiss mm. are remarkable. Um, but we should look for patterns, not anomalies, when we're trying to decide on good policy. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's a fair point. What constraints would the governments have outside of elections? Uh, as in, would... Are there, are there any serious ways we can constrain governments outside of elections and constitutional rules? Like Singapore, as an example, would be very constrained by how other trading partners view it and how capital flows come into the country. They're respectively 150 and 160% of GDP. So um, 
are there examples of things apart from voting and and constitutions uh, constraining governments? Well, I I think Alexander Hamilton really nailed this um, when he wrote about the role of the public debt in disciplining mm -hmm. a government. Excuse me. Um, so the um, Alexander Hamilton, the nation's first Treasury Secretary in the United States, mm -hmm. he knew that the global pool of money could discipline his government's behavior. Um, politicians are politicians are intensely focused on um, the short run. They're focused on elections, and but if a government needs to borrow money, then and if there's some debt floating around, then the global pool of money is voting on your government's policies um, minute by minute, hour by hour. Right. And so that's a vote. That's a that's a form of voting that even very busy politicians can pay attention. And so Hamilton made a point of making sure that the U.S. you know was involved in in credit markets and issuing issuing bonds, so that there would be another important form of voting, fiscal discipline, mm -hmm. um, that would be you know giving a thumbs up or a thumbs down every single day on government policy. So I think that's an important one. I like that. In uh, a ch chapter six of ten percent less policy, yeah. So if yeah. if a country gets into a big uh, debt crisis, it's going to have the, the global pool of money is going to be helping to shape the government's policy anyway. And so I think we should actually try to formalize that role, um, perhaps through creating something like a council of treasury bondholders that meets every six months with the treasury secretary just to give advice on what would make for good policy. Now, would you consider yourself a public intellectual? Well, I mean, I'm on Twitter, so I think that's the bare minimum requirement for being yeah. a public intellectual. You have that's a tough one. I mean, my colleague so. Tyler Cowan is uh, is, a, is a serious public intellectual. Mm -hmm. right? I mean, um, maybe maybe I'm one uh, for a couple hours every six months. Mm. Uh, how do you think? How do you say uh, different ideas come through from? Uh, papers to actual policy, given you've served at different parts of the aspect uh, of the idea pipeline. Uh, how do how do things go from Hayek's road to serfdom to uh, Ronald Reagan getting elected? This really is a great question. And it's it's it is too messy to test, right? So mm -hmm. um, I think it's one where it's the answer is important, but it's one of these mushy things. It's like asking where cultural norms come from, mm -hmm. right? Where um, there is, as you say, an idea. It's it's not really an idea pipeline. I mean, I think that's the first metaphor to uh, that's a, that's the metaphor to dismantle right there. Um, it's closer to a river that's that's fed by many many streams, mm -hmm. and there is some. You know, Keynes was right that some of it is politicians being the slaves of some defunct economist. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes. It's, but, but much of it is an attempt to, in modern, in democracies, it's an attempt to fuse the inchoate public opinion, mm -hmm. the, inco, the, the incoherent but not meaningless public opinion with what good policymakers say is feasible. Okay. So there's some kind of politicians and democracies are looking for something like the intersection between those groups. Right. I want my voters or that at least will not entirely anger crucial parts of my coalition. And I want something that will actually be pretty good policy that pays off. Um, this is another case where the Federalist Papers, the one of the Federalist Papers that was about the Senate said, 
one reason I have a six-year Senate term is because you want a politician who's willing to start off a project early in the term that will pay off late in the term. And then um, he, back then, he would take, be able to take credit for it before the election. Okay. So would you, do you think the first past the post system makes uh, policies more or less radical? Well, I mean, um, I mean, first past the post, the, the plurality system that we use in the U.S., where we usually use a one round voting system mm -hmm. and whoever gets the most votes, even if it's 30 percent, um, mm -hmm. it becomes a winner. That I mean, normal voting, normal, normal analyses of voting methods suggest that's pretty bad. Just okay. moving to a simple runoff system is far, far better than mm -hmm. that. Um, you're much less likely to get someone who almost everyone hates, for instance, right. to sum up you know, decades of research in voting theory. So a simple runoff system is a huge step up and everyone understands how it works. So I'm very glad, for instance, that the French have that mm. kind of system for choosing the president, right? Um, I, don't, I don't think it fully focuses, it pushes though toward radicalism. It actually, it's a, it, it gets you a lot of median voter theorem results in normal cases where, where small parties are pretty weak. Mm -hmm. And you see this again and again in the United States House and the Senate, where the social media is consumed by the most extreme 10 or 15 percent of either party. Mm -hmm. And yet when you look at the policies that come out the door, it's um, there, there's often some waffly thing in the middle that displeases that pleases no one. Hmm. Um, and when politicians ignore them, you know, we, we think of that as a, an illustration of what we call the median voter theorem in economics, right? right. Which is that there's a tendency right. of candidates to move their platforms toward the middle so they can win uh, a, a majority. And there's a tendency within legislatures for winning proposals to be one to please somebody right in the middle. And we're seeing this in the Senate right now where the, there's three or four very moderate um, Democratic senators, and they're shaping what, what gets passed, right? Yeah. Do you think the filibuster is a good idea? Because I've, I've never understood why there's a requirement for 60 votes for legislation to pass. If you have 51, go on. Well, this is a great question. Um, is, I mean, as my colleagues Buchanan and Tulloch uh, wrote decades ago, drawing on Swedish economist Newt Wicksell, um, the ideal of democratic decision-making probably ought to be unanimity rule, 100%. Right. So um, that's something that's beautiful in theory, but often very hard to pull, you know, pull off and unwise to try to pull off in practice. Because the, the, but, there's, there's going to be one guy who by purposefully says, I'm not letting this pass. Yes. So and you're giving your, your, and, and, it, and it, it gives the squeakiest wheel a lot of power to just endlessly um, delay, delay coming to a decision. Um, but it's worth remembering that the, that the filibuster requirement in the Senate is maintained by a majority rule. All it takes is a majority to completely eliminate the filibuster. Mm -hmm. So the public choice question, the first public choice question I think about the filibuster is, why does the majority not want to rule? And if you start asking yourself that question, why is it that the majority in the Senate does not want to rule? You can understand why the filibuster has endured as long as it can. Um, it's Someone on, online pointed out to me one good reason why the filibuster is likely to exist in the real world, not in a utopian world. And it's because the Senate is made up of um, 
states with such unequal power that often decisions that are made by a bare majority will be made up by much less than a majority of the population or the economic power of the country. And right. so that might lead to very unstable decision-making um, that could be very easily overturned. Um, so one argument for the filibuster is that it reduces the possibility of what we call you know, chaotic cycles in politics, where option A defeats option B, defeats option C, defeats option A. Um, in practice, it does, you know, it seems though, I mean, it does seem as though the historic, the segregation of South um, was of course a strong supporter of using the filibuster in the 1950s and 60s. But right. again, we should ask the question, why did the majority not want to get rid of that? And, you know, a public choicer would probably say, um, maybe the reason is because a majority of senators, even if they weren't from the South, were themselves segregationists or, or, or quietly supportive of segregationism and didn't want it to be overturned. So we should be asking ourselves, whenever we see a supermajority rule imposed by a majoritarian legislature, why is it that the majority does not want to rule? Would one hypothesis be that senators themselves see the value of that in case next time we're on the losing side, we won't, uh, we need some uh, sort of guarantee, uh, a, a trampoline of sorts that we won't completely fall to the ground? It's, so this is, this is an argument for sort of like a loss aversion, right? Where mm. the wins when you're in power aren't as good as the losses when you're out of power yeah. are bad, right? So it's a sort of diminishing marginal utility of winning. Um, there's plausibly something to that, except for the fact that the filibuster endured for so long when it was a reliably democratic organization. Hmm. I mean, for decades, the Senate was in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, it was very reliably with small little flips um, controlled by Democrats. And nevertheless, the filibuster remained. So it's it's noteworthy. The, the that idea can't be the whole story because when you when you know if you know you're going to be in power with a very high probability for decades, you should be willing to just take your lumps. Um, so yeah, that's that makes it you know. So it's, um, but I, I it it may have a lot to do with the unequal power in the across the states in the Senate, and it may have to do with the desire. Um, a prudent desire to give the best case for it, you know, to sort of steel man the case for the filibuster, briefly at least. Um, and maybe this desire to um, try to avoid passing laws by slim majorities because bills that get passed by slim majorities are difficult to sort of do routine maintenance on. Mm. We saw that, for instance, with Obamacare, with the Affordable right. Care Act, passed by a slim majority. And they've never been able to do the routine worksmanship, the routine tinkering you do with pieces of legislation, which mm -hmm. is part of the reason it's led to these endless lawsuits. Um, yeah. But, um, yeah. So Social Security and Medicare, by contrast, uh, very big uh, spending programs passed even by the small government senators would be in, would be in favor of that. It, they would today, and they were passed. They were initially passed with big majorities. So every time you came to revisit the bill or tinker with it, you would at least get a solid majority for tinker. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, you, okay, there are two perspectives on economists' roles in society. One is John mm -hmm. Maynard Keynes, who wanted economists to be trusted like dentists. And the other is your colleague, Brian Kaplan, who thinks that they should tackle the big questions. Uh, which side are, are, are you on? Because, because your work is focused on both. You 
worked on the monetary policy, which seems like the more dentist kind. And you and this mm-hmm. book and and your previous book, Hive Mind, is a lot more of the big questions kind. No, I mean, I mean, Keynes may have been using a sort of false humility when he said that, right? I mean, yeah. for a person who hoped to come up with grand sweeping insights about the nature of how to save capitalism, mm-hmm. that's, you know, uh, so I'm definitely more on the Kaplan side than on the alleged Keynes side, which I, mm-hmm. I again, I doubt Keynes really believed okay. that. He, he had a, he had a, he had a prudent view of his own, he had a accurate view of his own self-importance, I think. And of what economists do, but you know, um, economists have a certain have a set of tools that I think are quite sweeping in scope. And the fact that we have quite good theory, and we have a lot of training in how to think about learning about cause and effect from non-experimental evidence. I think those two powers together combine to create a, a real, a great toolkit for addressing the social problems of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of which, economics has gone through a credibility revolution over the last thirty or so years. Do you think it's mm-hmm. do you think it's do you think it's it's made policy better or, or worse? Um, no, I'm I'm a huge fan of the credibility revolution and the quest to train people in looking for natural experiments and to emphasize identification mm-hmm. um, because it does help us get beyond mere storytelling. Right. Uh, so this is this is great, but at the same time, it brings us some of the same problem. We should be we should be aware of the problems it creates, right? Mm-hmm. If you're only going to believe stuff, if you're only going to believe results that come from natural experiments, mm-hmm. well, most of the things we call natural experiments tend to be things that last, say, you know, six months, a year, two years, right? Mm-hmm. Some one state changes the minimum wage law, and the one next door to it doesn't. Um, so this will be great method, uh, this would be a great method for looking at six month, one year, two year effects of a policy change. Mm-hmm. But often what we care about is the long run, right? So if we think about whether it's global climate change or the taxation of capital or immigration policy, these are issues where long run effects surely matter much more than some kind of short run natural experiment. Effect. Right. That's the problem that happens in medicine, of course, as well, right? Where you can only run, um, a medical intervention test for say a pharmaceutical for that's what that's a true experiment with for six months a year two years you, you can't track these people forever right um when you're testing out a drug versus and you placebo. can with, with with enough money but we don't have that so and the problem is and a good ethical problem now this is a good problem yeah. now. when you find out the drug works there is considered to be a strong norm that you let people leave the placebo arm and get the take the actual drug. Mm. This is a problem that we had a good problem again to have um, with the vaccine trials. Once okay. it turns out that a vaccine works um, to fight COVID, it becomes morally important to let people who are in the placebo arm know, hey, you didn't get the real drug. Do you want it now? Mm. And so then you can't run an experiment after that. You really can't. I mean, it's unethical. It's widely considered unethical to run an experiment after that. So it's very difficult to look at long-run effects using the natural experiment approach as a general rule. And that is an extreme limitation of the natural experiment approach. If I gave you a large sum of money, $20 billion, and told you to, to excuse all the uh, ethical concerns you had, what, uh, what, what experiment would you run? Oh, let's see. Um, 
yes, I would, I would want to try out um, an experiment of high skilled, massive high skilled immigration to a, to a few small countries. Hmm. You know, reward, long run, permanent relocation, subsidized and voluntary um, of people from uh, people who are very highly skilled to countries, to a variety of countries and look at the long run effects of that. Um, I think that would be a fascinating thing to learn. I think it's, um, I think also um, the kind of work that, that uh, Cowan and Tabarrok have pushed for when it comes to improving funding for the National Science Foundation, improving um, experimental research. So, ex so that scientific research is less about rent seeking and giving rewards to elderly successful scientists mm -hmm. and more, um, more lottery ticket playing, more credible um, giving of rewards to young promising people because the rewards to scientific and technological and engineering innovation really are versions of mining for gold where we, we should expect most efforts to be failures, but the successes are worth so much that we should reward that we should be willing to take a lot of losses in order to get those. So, but, but again, notice both of these are forms of, of um, testing the benefits of meritocracy, right? Mm -hmm. Testing various forms of meritocracy. And I think the payoffs to that are very high. And I think um, rich democracies have become subject to, you know, what Jonathan Rauch calls demosclerosis and where it's harder to take these sort of big, these big um, meritocratic moonshot approaches um, because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of rent seekers standing around who feel like, Hey, I should get my money too. So on the one hand, you have rent seekers around coming around saying, Hey, I want my money too. On the other hand, you have people saying, why don't we give this to the super successful people who we already know are known quantities. So both of those are paths to getting low return investments on scientific, um, scientific research. Speaking of which, economics is a lot like that I've seen, which that the top five to ten universities dominate the, the conversation, and maybe uh -huh. six or, and maybe six or seven journals are where most of the prestigious research is published. Uh, what do you think of that? And and is it is it a good thing? Um. I mean, compared to the alternatives that I've seen, uh, yes. I mean, and I compared to the alternatives of other fields um, that aren't economics. Uh, I mean, part of it is that there just there just aren't that many. I mean, this is this is the nature of say anything where there's expertise, right? Mm -hmm. um, if we think about the NFL or the NBA, right? The vast, you know, almost all of the best players in basketball are playing in the NBA, right? Do mm -hmm. I think that the NBA should be two or three or four times bigger? Do I think that other smaller basketball leagues should get more attention? Probably not, right? I think mm -hmm. that there's there's room for just us look us getting to watch the very best people in a sport perform, and in fields where we can watch the expertise, we can feel comfortable evaluating, them, right? Mm -hmm. But when you're an outsider to a field, you say. Oh, those experts, those people who say they're great, they're probably not great. They probably just got their jobs through somebody's cousin. And surely connections matter and who you know or whatever. But when I go looking for the best papers in the field, they're very likely to be published in one of the top journals. Mm. You know, I'm not in one of these top 50 places and I don't know, top 10 places, excuse me. Um, I got my PhD at one of them, but mm -hmm. um, I don't aspire to that. And yet still, when I go around looking for the best stuff, 
there's a pretty good chance. And maybe it's, you know, this is the question of, of celebrity and movies, right? Um, how much of being a gr winning best actor or best actress is a matter of true merit versus just the fact that you became a focal point for the culture, right? Everyone talks about this actress because everyone talks about this actress. Uh, yeah. She's famous because of her great talent, mm -hmm. right? And you can argue that there's some of both at work, but when I think about acting I, and why some actors are vastly more famous than others, I tend to think most people are pretty boring and mm -hmm. most people don't want to listen to most people most, most of the time. Yeah. And they're just a few of us who are really interesting to watch, interesting to talk to, interesting to listen to. Maybe that's a huge reason why some people became um, famous actors and actresses. Maybe that's what's going on in economics too. Maybe most of us economists just don't have much to say. When you work, when you think of when you think of changing public opinion or at least elite opinion on an idea, should should you start by shifting the overt window slowly over many years, or should you just jump across and say this is the this is the ideal and this is what we should do? Oh, that's a great question, and there I, I do think this is a case where you should let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, you know, Milton Friedman said that he thought the job of an economist was not to worry about what was, politic what was politically feasible, but just to say what you thought was best mm -hmm. and then let other people worry about the compromises. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of our best pure theory results in, in economics are these extreme cases, these impossibility theorems or irrelevance theorems that are, that are really way out there. Mm -hmm. um, and less interesting people will say, those theories are extreme, so let's ignore them. Um, but often these, these irrelevance or impossibility theorems are so robust that you just start realizing they have these fantastic insights. So extreme theorizing, extreme results, I tend to think are good, um, good, fruit for, good fruit for the mind. I think they help the rest of us think through um, what's going to happen, what, what will make for good policy and what will make for bad policy. So mm -hmm. just one example, in the early, in the 70s, when um, Robert Lucas and Thomas Sargent and others worked through these results that said that systematic monetary policy can't matter in a wide variety of monetary models. Mm -hmm. Basically telling everybody, we're going we're gonna to grow the money 5% per year faster forever. He says that the only long run effect of that is going to just be to create higher inflation. You're not going to, you can't permanently lower the unemployment rate by permanently increasing money growth. And a lot of people said, well, you know, there might be exceptions or whatever, but it's weird that decades later, almost every model now takes for granted at least the long run version of what Lucas and Sargent were saying back in the 70s. We quibble about what the long run is. Is it one year or seven years or 10 years? But these crazy <laughs> theorems that attracted widespread hatred and widespread mockery in the profession in the 70s are now the benchmark of even the mainstream models. 5% faster money growth forever is not going to make you richer forever. But isn't that Figuring just why that's true has big insight. Isn't that just se selection bias? There are probably a thousand models of, like, giving crazy results and like these and these five got through. Well, but we, but notice we do get to select over time. This is a version of the panning for gold theory, which I think of as you know, sort of one of Paul Romer's big ideas, Nobel laureate, mm. that basically we want a thousand, we want a thousand ideas to be 
created that are crazy, even if 999 of them are disastrous. Because it's the one, it's only the one that, um, that is great that we're going to keep. We can discard them, right? This is something we learn in general equilibrium theory, right? There's, mm. We assume often that there's free disposal of goods. And when it comes to the marketplace of ideas, there's a lot of free disposal. Um, okay. Nobody remembers, nobody remembers 99% of the plays that were written in Shakespeare's day, right? Mm. We know like half of Shakespeare's stuff and some Johnson and uh, Marlowe and a couple other people. We got to discard all the bad stuff. We got to keep the good stuff. A lot of states um, reset their regulations every 10 years or mm-hmm. some of this thing. Is that a good idea? I mean, I'm a, uh, and in principle, I'm totally sympathetic. To that. Yeah, I don't have any strong reason to object to it. I think the, um, this is a way of getting around the demosclerosis problem uh, or the, mm. the sort of iron hand of dead law, the sort of accretion of you know, medieval laws um, that just persist for generations upon generations. I was just in West Virginia this weekend and uh, just this weekend for the first time ever, they were allowed to sell alcohol before 1 p.m. on a Sunday. I've heard of this, yeah. Right, so this, this known as, these are known as blue laws. So, um, so some setting provisions, having to revisit your code, not immediately, but slowly, seems like a good idea because there's um, the dead hand, you know, this, this is sort of, Ch- there's a Chester and Spence story to this, right? I'm not sure if your listeners would be familiar with Chester's mm-hmm. story about the fence, that um, before you take a fence down, you should ask why it was put up in the first place. Yeah. Um, now, a 10-year sunsetting law might give you enough time to see why the why this old rule was there. If you had to revisit it every year, that'd be too much. Uh, now, uh, Texas elects its attorney general. Uh, you didn't talk much about that in your, in, your, in, your, in your book. Should we should the U.S. in the federal government have a separately elected attorney general? No. I think that um, actually when I was <laughs> 22 years old, I wrote the opposite in an essay. Uh-huh. And I've been thinking about that essay I wrote ever since. It was part of my, my more or less master's thesis at mm-hmm. Cornell. And I've uh, been thinking about this question of whether state positions and, you know, indirectly federal positions should, more of them should be elected. And no, I think the evident, uh, the idea of electing one person and letting that person delegate authority and holding that one person on top accountable seems to pay off well. Um, The most concrete example I have of this in the book is um, study of city treasurers in California that showed that um, when states switch from elected city treasurers to appointed city treasurers in California, the average borrowing interest rate dropped about half a percent. So that could add up to a lot. And I think one county in California bought a bunch of weird housing derivatives on leverage and they messed up real bad in 2008. Yes, that was my... um, I'm from the county where that happened. That was Orange County, California. Uh, And the the city treasurer... Um, he was the only elected Democrat in the county at the time. And so <laughs> the Republicans around like to make fun of the partisan issue. To me, the point wasn't that he was an elected Democrat. It's that he was an elected Democrat. Yeah. Right? He was elected. Um, if he'd been appointed, there would have been somebody at least checking in on his office now and then, maybe every few months to see what was going on. And when you hear that the city treasurer has consulted um, a psychic for advice about the county's <laughs> finances, that's you probably let that person resign, right? 
Yeah, yeah. I think I think there was a story when Nancy Reagan consulted a psychic on the correct days to hold the summit with with Michael Gorbachev. So yep, yep. That uh, that ended out properly. We 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 got lucky on that. Uh, well, you I, know, which day of the week it was someone isn't so bad, but how you <laughs> how you invest the county's money is a lot worse. Yeah. Um, I live in Singapore, which is sort of an odd mixture of your thesis and your anti-thesis, which mm-hmm. is we have, um, we elect a, a government every five years and they have mm-hmm. broad discretion on what, on who gets what positions. But it's the same people who are elected who end up running the major in institutions. The prime minister is the chairman of the sovereign wealth fund. A, a senior minister in the cabinet is the head of the, of the central bank and so on. What's your, do you think this is a, if you have a sort of responsible elite, it's a good model? I mean, yeah, this is, this is an interesting question. Like in parliament, parliamentary systems in general, like this is how things work, right? Right. Um, the people who are the top officials who are, they represent some small district within the country and they're also the minister of finance mm. or they're also the, the equivalent of an attorney general. And um, so the less democracy thesis would say, well, no, you should have some of these, a wide variety of these jobs at least mm. um, run by people who have long terms and have real independence, mm. um, like a central bank or a judiciary that has, so I think that there's a there's a strong case for adding um, a judiciary, um, an independent central bank where people have very long terms and can say no to the government that appoints them. Mm-hmm. This turned out to be very valuable last year in the election, after the election mm-hmm. when Donald Trump lost, and the judges he appointed um, right. told him his cases were ridiculous. Yeah, right? nine zero. So that was pretty big. Oh, is that? Is that one of the names? I, no, no. I, th- I think the one where some states sued other states saying you can't do that in your ele- yes. elections was to still out 9-0. Yeah, this- so, these, um, so from the Supreme Court on downward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there were quite a, quite a few uh, Republican-appointed judges, Trump-appointed judges who, you know, they've got a job for life. They can say no to this person. Mm-hmm. So a bit of independence goes a long way. Um, Singapore does have the, the merit of a... <coughs> quite independent uh, like a civil service that is strongly professional right mm-hmm. you can't quite call them you can't call them independent of the legislature in any way but uh the norms of professionalism um are certainly admirable uh, some of my colleagues here at gmu have suggested that uh it would be great for the world as a whole if uh, singapore franchise franchised its government model yeah there was a proposal to do that in australia where some uh, ex-bureaucrat said that we'll give us some 200 square kilometers in Australia and then we'll 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 run it as a as a as a as a charter city and you guys can have half the half the equity and we'll take it but never got very far because the Australians weren't willing to give up their land. Yeah it's <laughs> it's it's um disappointing that it's that more countries don't just try to bring in foreign experts to basically run big chunks of their government, mm-hmm. that uh, nationalism is so strong. Um, some countries do a great job, though, of saying, we'll let foreigners come in and run uh, big parts of our government. Of course, the British did this when they let Canadian Mark Carney be the head of their central bank. Right. Um, and this is hiring, the, especially if you're a small country, you should be hiring the best in the world, not just the best in your country. Mm-hmm. I think I, I, I think Hong Kong has Commonwealth judges, though I think they've all left yes. now. 
yes. Um, but there are quite a few countries around the world that have a foreigner sitting on some of their highest courts. And um, partly that helps you get you, give you some genuine independence, mm -hmm. um, independent ideas. But it's also just a way to hire from a bigger pool of people. I mean, if I mean, the hospitals in the United States don't feel behold, don't feel uh, constrained to hire only American doctors, thank goodness. Uh, why should governments in the United States feel obliged to hire only American workers? And most of all, professors, there's almost open borders for that. So Exactly. <laughs> open borders. Um, people sometimes say, you economists wouldn't be in favor of open borders if you actually had to compete against foreigners for your jobs. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I compete against them all the time, right? And I'm very glad for this. This is great right. for us. Right. So this is where I get great colleagues from. So, do you think liberalism has an effect on policy, as in the entire um, uh, free press separation of, of of ideas, or can countries do without it? Because China's done well, uh, Singapore's done well, Vietnam's done not as well as as China, but but pretty well. Uh, Botswana's done, although it's not it's not completely illiberal. It's done pretty fine, though. Well, I um, I mean. Yes, Botswana has done has done very well, and it has followed quite a few uh, liberal norms. Um, and um, I do like to point out that uh, China is the world's poorest majority Chinese country. Mm -hmm. So treating mm -hmm. it's it's good that it's doing much better than it was a few decades ago. Mm -hmm. um, but you know they basically had to wait for Mao to die before all of the previous uh, before the much of the rest of the leadership could say. Yeah, Mao was right, and we really were all secretly capitalists. <laughs> they had so to wait they for Mao to die, and they had to have a huge power struggle, and then yes. Deng Xiaoping got in. So it was, it was, yes. it it wasn't guaranteed by by any means. Definitely not, right? And so, um, you know, it, it's hard to know. I mean, I very much hope that China becomes a rich and prosperous country with a lot of freedom for the people who live there. But Singapore is a much more interesting model of a country that is liberal along some dimensions and illiberal along others right mm. and this fusion this fusion that it's created um it's it's certainly better than most countries in the world right and i i do think there's this question of i mean the global pool of money really wants to have a free exchange of ideas and a willingness to debate business decisions and hiring decisions mm -hmm. and location decisions and product decisions, right? So that's already a lot of liberalism right there. You need mm -hmm. just to get the global pool of money pretty happy. Um, I don't know where that line ends mm -hmm. for, 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 for getting in high quality FDI from the richest countries, mm -hmm. but there's some point at which that would be too far, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think this um, I do think that this, that the, 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 the equilibrium for prosperous countries will be at least somewhere strictly between the, um, the, free, the freedoms of, say, the United States or Denmark even, and Singapore. I think somewhere in between is the natural resting point for countries that are going to be rich and prosperous. And I think they'll all feel that pull. So I don't take, for instance, America's official statement of you know, very extreme freedom of speech, 
very extreme um, freedom of action and religious choice as being the natural equilibrium for all countries. I just don't think it's a resting point for widespread prosperity for everyone. America may be an anomaly. It was a specific factor because of specific ideological things American founders had. And it's, yeah. and it's, 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 so, it's so exceptional that it was there because to find people with like-minded ideas in, in 1700s, it's, I, 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 I personally am very surprised when I think of it every single time. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, uh, it, 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 that is a case where there was cl- something closer to an idea pipeline rather than just a river. Right. Exactly. Um, the, the enlightenment ideals um, reflecting on the failures or what they saw as the failures of the Roman empire. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking at the best parts of what they saw in the UK and wanting to improve on that. Um, and then a bunch of very highfalutin abstract philosophy about, equality and rights of man, which they routinely violated on an everyday basis, but nonetheless made it into their texts and which became legally enforceable in ways that some of them probably... And I, I, like one of the more interesting ways is that after slavery was, was abolished, the 14th Amendment is now used for, uh, for uh, saying that um, illegal immig- the children of illegal immigrants were now have a birthright citizenship in the U.S., which is like when you think of it, it's it's, it's quite an evolution of ideas from uh, you know from we, we put this so you can't disenfranchise former slaves to this entirely new thing. Oh, so you're referring to how the 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 post Civil War amendments have been interpreted regarding yeah. citizenship? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it was clear that. that the authors, the authors, I, I haven't, I know only know a little about the legal history of um, how the birthright citizenship uh, claim was interpreted. Um, but it's obvious that many of the authors of that amendment, I mean, this was something that was pushed by radical Republicans, of course, right? Mm. Who were, by the, by the standards of our day, very strong civil rights activists. Right. And so that gives you a sense of, kind of what they were pushing. They wanted something very sweeping in terms of making clear that citizenship would be, that full citizenship in the United States was broadly available to everyone born here. Um, apparently the legal disputes later on, there, when you look for anomalies, there are these anomalies about whether um, that people addressed at the time over later, a little bit later about um, people who were the children of diplomats, for instance. Right? Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. it's well known as an exception, right? Through all law, that's well known as an exception. In, in any kind of citizenship. Yeah, the um, yeah, the nature of constitutions is sometimes the, the words end up taking places you don't expect. Yeah, it's too mm-hmm. too far outside my expertise to offer much of a value. 